Hey, Firsties, I wanted to jump on here real quick and tell you about our Patreon. If you have listened to every single episode of The First Degree and you want more content, you can get up to four bonus episodes a month over at patreon.com slash the first degree. And we've got a mix. We've got some traditional true crime storytelling over there, as well as, you know, some episodes that we're having a good time, having some cocktails, talking shit, you know the drill. Plus, it's uncensored, so we can do whatever the hell we want over there. So we would love to have you go to patreon.com slash the first degree to join. The first degree. First degree. First degree. First degree. First degree. First degree. The first degree. You see it on the news. You see it on the paper. You see it on Facebook. These things are supposed to happen in movies, not in real life. There was an aura about him. There was just an evil. I'm sure you've had this happen where you're around someone and your antenna go up and you say there's something creepy about this guy. It was like that on steroids. There was just something about him that literally gave me the chills. Evil is actually a palpable thing. I don't know. I mean, you can actually feel it. You can sense things about people, whether you see them, touch them, hear them or whatever. And and he had it. There was just something that emanated from him that was so evil. And that was just, that's why I noticed him. Welcome to the First Degree, the true crime podcast that you might end up on. My name is Jack Vanek. I'm hitting, wow, I'm sitting here with Alexis Linkletter. It has been five seconds and I already messed it up. But hello, it's September. How are we feeling about this? I'm feeling pretty good about it. Are you, you're feeling good about the fall? Kind of, except my birthday is approaching, which never is great. Mm. But you know, I'm trying to lean into whatever whatever the year brings me, whatever the year brings you. I'm excited for like my first pumpkin spice of the season and then to not really like it. And then to be done until next year, you always got to get one, you know, I don't fuck with any of that. Mm. I don't like nutmeg. I don't like pumpkin, anything. I don't like that fall spice flavor. Fine. I'll drink it for the both of us. Um, Are you ready for the day today? I am ready. So today is September 7th. There's a lot of days going on. They're all very weird. It's National Acorn Squash Day, which is very on brand, you know, using the acorn squashes for home decor, for a little food. Very festive. I like a gourd. I like a gourd. It's also National Beer Lovers Day. So go crack open a cold one. And then it is, and you'll like this, National Salami Day. Okay. I like a cured meat. Yes. So grab a cheese plate, grab a beer. doesn't really go together, but you know, mismatch for the day. A gourd, a decorative gourd. Yes. All of it. Love it. All right. Well, that's enough of that. So let's turn down the lights. And turn up your anxiety. Because this could be you. Few of us ever realize at the time when we've had close encounter with evil, but sometimes we find ourselves in situations, either by design or sheer coincidence, where we meet someone our instincts recognize as a danger to us. Whether it's a stranger on the street or your neighbor of 25 years, we don't always know what's behind those people's eyes. Regular listeners know that at the end of our episodes, we say, only you can prevent serial killers. And it kind of sounds like a throwaway line. But the reality is that in this modern age, we could cross paths with a serial offender at any given time and be none the wiser. 
According to the FBI, at any given moment in the U.S., there are 25 to 50 serial killers that have evaded capture that are lurking with us. They're living their lives and they're interacting daily with dozens or more people. People who have no idea. And those people could be any one of you. So we begin today's case on December 17th of 1998. So this was the 95th anniversary of the Wright brothers and their first sustained motorized aircraft flight in North Carolina. So it's a big day. And it's also the 65th anniversary of the first professional NFL football game between the Chicago Bears and the New York Giants. The number one song on the pop charts was I'm Your Angel by R. Kelly, which is a little problematic, and Celine Dion. And also in the top five were Shania Twain's From This Moment On, Do Wop That Thing by Lauren Hill, which is honestly a classic. And the top movie at the box office that week was the adorable rom-com You've Got Mail. Ugh. Tom Hanks and Meg Ryan. What a great movie. What a great movie. And the setting for this story today we're telling begins in Houston, Texas. I think I've certainly been to Houston. I think Jack certainly has too. Yeah, Hot. Hot. Besides being hot, it's the fourth largest city in the United States. And it's situated on the Gulf Coast in southeast Texas in Harris County. The city of around 2.3 million people is located about 240 miles south of Dallas, Texas. So this area was originally home to the Karankawa people and Atacapa peoples until European settlers arrived in the area in the 1830s. So during World War II, Houston was the center of the country's shipbuilding, oil production, and steel manufacturing. It's also home to this Johnson Space Center, a NASA field center conducting space flight training. Lots of stuff going on in Houston. So our first degree for today's case is named Julie. And since late 90s, Julie has lived in the Tree Line Incorporated Houston neighborhood of West University Place. It's a sought-after location where professionals and families live. It's a very nice community. It's one of these communities that was originally built in probably the 40s, and they were little bungalows, and over time, the bungalows get torn down, and these big, you know, McMansions get built. So basically, you've got a bunch of big houses on little lots, but I think the average house cost here now is probably a million one or a million two. Back then, it wasn't quite that high, but it's been very much, um, you know, kind of a, a nice neighborhood. The week before Christmas of 1998, Shockwaves moved through the neighborhood when a local resident named Dr. Claudia Benton was horrifically murdered. Claudia only lived three-fourths of a mile from Julie, and for something like this to happen in this area was extremely out of the ordinary. Julie remembers just how shocking it was. It was, of course, all over the news because it was sort of like unusual to have a murder in this particular neighborhood. It tends to be a fairly high-end neighborhood without a lot of sort of things like that. You know, you normally have kids throwing beer cans and stuff like that, but this was pretty unique. 39-year-old Dr. Claudia Gabriella Benton was Peruvian and was a well-respected and compassionate pediatric geneticist and researcher who worked for Baylor College of Medicine. And after marrying her husband, George, and moving to Houston in the mid-1980s, the couple welcomed twin daughters. On the evening of December 16th of 98, Claudia was at home alone, while husband George and their 11-year-old daughters were in Arizona visiting family. And after preparing for a big presentation for the following day, Claudia was exhausted and got in bed and went to sleep. After midnight, an intruder entered the home through an unlocked door. They attacked Claudia while she was in bed, raping her, stabbing her with a kitchen knife, and bludgeoning her 19 times with a two-foot-tall bronze statue from the Benton's home. 
The killer then stole some money, figurines, jewelry, electronics, and a meat cleaver before driving away in Claudia's Jeep. When police found Claudia's body on the bedroom floor, she was covered in blankets. Her Jeep was later found in San Antonio of all places, and the cops managed to lift a man's fingerprints from the steering column. Everyone in the community was aghast at what had happened. But you know how it goes sometimes. Initial shock and horror. It blows over over time. And while Dr. Benton's murder shook the community, slowly but surely, people were forced to return to their daily lives. Well, I didn't get nervous at all because I had no reason to be nervous. You know, when you hear that someone's killed in their house, you figure, well, it was an intruder. It was some kind of disgruntled family member. I mean, you don't really think it's like a serial murderer. Almost six months later, Julie heard about the murder of a married couple, Norman and Karen Cernick, who lived in Weimar, Texas. The town was close to San Antonio, where Claudia's Jeep was found. And some people naturally wondered if these slayings were more than a coincidence. Apparently, when he killed Dr. Benton, he took her car and they found it in San Antonio. And Weimar's not far from San Antonio. So the general thinking, I think, locally among people in our community was, well, that guy's gone north. 46-year-old Reverend Norman Drone Skip Cernick had been minister of the Weimar United Church of Christ for 10 years. His 47-year-old wife, Karen, worked as a church secretary, and the couple lived in the parsonage at the rear of the building, which was close to a nearby railroad. So on May 2nd of 99, members of the congregation waited for the couple to show up for their regular Sunday service, as they always did. But when they were no-shows, church members went to the parsonage to look for them. There is where they discovered the couple's bodies, again, covered in blankets. They'd been bludgeoned to death by a sledgehammer the killer had taken from their own garage. Karen had also been sexually assaulted post-mortem. Three weeks later, police found the couple's red Mazda in San Antonio. Fingerprints had been taken from the scene of the double murder, and they matched those taken from Claudia Benton's home. There were already similarities. The victims had not only been killed from an item in their own homes, but their bodies were covered. The crime scenes were also situated close to railroad tracks, and this burial would be very, very key. At this point, the authorities felt a sense of dread creeping in when they realized they were dealing with a serial killer. Right, and that detail wasn't exactly shared with the public right away. But it's complicated, right? It's the 90s, and we're talking about multiple law enforcement jurisdictions. So while police maybe knew this was a serial killer, the public didn't. And uh, neither did our first-degree Julie, and it wouldn't be long before Houston residents were on high alert once more. 26-year-old Naomi Dominguez worked as a school teacher at Benjamin Franklin Elementary School and lived in her own apartment near a railroad line. On June 4th, 1999, she was found in her apartment. The scene, like the others, was nightmarish. She'd been bludgeoned to death with a pickaxe as she slept. Her murderer then covered her body with a quilt and fled the scene in Naomi's white Honda Civic. It was her brother who discovered her body, which is devastating. And under the cover of darkness, the killer drove 100 miles west to Schulenburg, which was only 10 minutes away from Weimar, where the Cernix double murder occurred. But this killer wasn't done, because just outside Schulenburg, they broke into the rural farmhouse of 73-year-old Josephine Convica. The widow and grandmother of six loved gardening, spending time with her family, and volunteering at her local church. Josephine was also bludgeoned to death with a pickaxe. When her daughter arrived the next day, she found her mother's body with the pickaxe still embedded in Josephine's head. The killer had also tried to steal Josephine's car, but it appeared they couldn't find the car keys. 
One after the next, the serial offender stole and ruined lives, devastating entire communities in his wake, leaving friends, families, and communities mourning in emotional ruins and, of course, in fear. The police and members of the public who were paying attention were all on edge. Two more women had now been killed under similar circumstances. When was this going to end? A week later, Naomi's vehicle was discovered abandoned on the International Bridge in Del Rio, Texas by state troopers. Our first-degree Julie was keeping an eye on the news, and like everyone in our community, had heard about the string of murders across Texas. Then, one morning not long after the murders of Naomi and Josephine, Julie headed out to walk her dog as she always did. So it would have been probably 7.30, 7.15 in the morning, and I was walking my dog. My husband was traveling on business at the time, so I was home alone, and my child at the time was four or five, five years old, I guess. So had to walk the dog before leaving for work, which was what we always did. And Julie wasn't out long before she crossed paths with somebody she didn't recognize as a familiar face from around the neighborhood. So I'm walking back to my house about two and a half blocks from turning into my street. I'm walking northbound, and this character is walking southbound on the same street. You see a lot of joggers or, you know, people out around the neighborhood getting their exercise. This wasn't that. My first thought, there's a bus stop about half a mile up the road, and often people who worked in this community who didn't live here, like housekeepers or gardeners or whatever, often would take the bus, and I'd see them walking down that street. And that was my first thought was, oh, it's someone who works in the neighborhood. Julie was pretty street smart. Before moving to Houston, she lived in New York City. So she always made it a point of making eye contact with strangers in her surroundings. I'm always like looking over my shoulder. And I think a lot of people don't. A lot of people, especially now, they walk around with their face down on their phone or whatever, and they're not paying attention to who's around them. So I looked at the guy and he looked at me and I... And that instant knew he was not a worker, that there was something off about this guy. He was a small guy. I mean, he was smaller than I am. I'm 5'7". He's, he's shorter than that. He's kind of wiry. And he was kind of nasty. He had that black kind of curlyish hair. And he was wearing blue jeans, which were pretty faded, and like this red, just a plain red cotton T-shirt that was obviously the worst for wear. West University Place was the sort of neighborhood where many people walked and generally smiled or spoke to one another as they passed. But not this guy. He glared at Julie, which literally gave her the shivers. She sensed something in his eyes and disposition that she really couldn't put into words. He looked at me as I looked at him, and it was kind of a glare. I mean, normally when you pass people even across the street and you you kind of smile or nod or say good morning it was none of that it was like a scowl and he just looked at me so i got very uncomfortable by that of course so kind of hurried my little dog along and continued to walk because there was an aura about him there was just an evil i'm sure you've had this happen where you're around someone and your antenna go up and you say there's something creepy about this guy It was like that on steroids. There was just something about him that literally, you know, and it was June in Houston, so it was hot. It literally gave me the chills. Julie was so freaked out that even though the safest thing was probably to go straight home, she avoided immediately heading in that direction because she didn't want the man to see exactly where she lived. When I was another, let's say, 20, 30 yards up the street, I turned back and he was looking at me. It's like he was watching me go up the street. And that's when I got really scared. So I got to my street, but I didn't want to turn on my street because I was afraid he might be following me. 
So I like continued on and went an extra block and then I cut away. And when I got to the extra block and turned back, I didn't see him anymore. So at that point, he turned down a side street. So then I lost sight of him. So then I continued around the block and got back home. Julie got home safely, but was pretty shaken, even though she'd only locked eyes with this man. But that was enough. Her spidey senses told her she had reason to be scared, although she didn't quite know why. She called her husband immediately. It made me very uncomfortable. So when I got back to my house and I told my housekeeper was there, of course, to look after my child. And um, I just said to her, keep the doors locked. There's a creepy guy in the neighborhood. And, And that was kind of the end of it, so to speak. Next, Julie set out by creatively booby-trapping her house because something with this guy just lingered with her and she suddenly didn't feel safe even in her own house. I went into my Christmas decorations and I have these things you hang on your doorknob during the holidays that have jingle bells on them, right? So first I got those and I put them on the exterior doors. Then I got slinkies out of the, the toy cabinet. And I strung, when I went to bed at night, I strung the slinkies across the stairs so that if somehow he had gotten in through the jingle bells, he would trip on the stairs. And then, of course, I got a shotgun out and kept it next to my bed. And my friends were saying, why don't you just put a sign on the door that says, on hill, come here, I've got a surprise for you. They I thought I was being pretty funny, but that was the only way I could sleep. The precautions Julie set up at her home might sound like something straight out of a movie, like Home Alone, for example, but she couldn't shake this feeling that this man's glare had given her. And even though she didn't think he'd actually followed her home, she couldn't be sure he hadn't stuck around to secretly watch her. When I was growing up, I took French in high school, but I could never get the language to stick. I wanted to be fluent so bad, but it never happened. I just couldn't focus and I couldn't practice enough and it didn't work. But thankfully, there's Rosetta Stone, which is the most trusted language learning program. And it's available on desktop or it can be used as an app on your phone or tablet. Rosetta Stone is different. It immerses you in so many ways. And with its intuitive process, you can pick up any language naturally, first with words, then phrases, and then sentences. And before you know it, boom, conversations. Plus, with Rosetta Stone's true accent feature, you'll get feedback on how well you're pronouncing words. It's like having a personal trainer for your accent. Don't put off learning that language. There's no better time than right now to get started. For a very limited time, the first-degree listeners can get Rosetta Stone's lifetime membership for 50% off. Visit rosettastone.com first. That's 50% off unlimited access to 25 language courses for the rest of your life. Redeem your 50% off at rosettastone.com first today. Okay, so it comes as no surprise that I have absolutely no idea how to cook. I don't want to learn how to cook. It's not really my thing. But when I tried Factor meals, it was a freaking game changer. So Factor's fresh, never frozen meals are dietitian approved and ready to eat in just two minutes. Yeah, two minutes. So no matter how busy you are, you'll always have time to enjoy nutritious, great tasting meals. So the first time I tried Factor meals, I was actually blown away because I'm like, 
that's it. That That's all it is. Two minutes and the meals are so delicious. With 35 different meals and more than 60 add-ons to choose from every single week, you'll always have new flavors to explore. And you can treat yourself to restaurant quality meals that feature premium ingredients like filet mignon, ooh, fancy, shrimp, and blackened salmon. Like I said, they're so easy to prepare. I love them. So head to factormeals.com slash degree 50 and use code degree 50 to get 50% off your first box plus 20% off your next month. That's code degree 50 at factorymeals.com slash degree 50 to get 50% off your first box plus 20% off your next month while your subscription is active. It's almost summer and the best and most sustainable way to shop for a new season is on the realreal.com. The real real is the largest and most trusted source for authenticated luxury resale. It's the only place you'll find brands like Hermes, Cartier, Prada, Dior, Staud, Zimmerman, Jacquemus, and more for up to 90% off retail. 10,000 plus new arrivals land every single day from hundreds of brands you love, all authenticated by a team of in-house experts. Whether it's that perfect wedding guest look, a new summer sandal, an updated beach tote, resort wear for your summer vacation, you're bound to find exactly what you're looking for, plus deals you won't get anywhere else on therealreal.com. Visit therealreal.com and use code FIRST at checkout for 20% off. Terms apply. By the time Julie had her run-in with a strange man in her neighborhood, police knew the killer was highly mobile and likely getting from place to place by stowing away on freight trains. They theorized he'd jump onto these trains and then get off them, and then he'd randomly select homes and break into them and kill his unsuspecting victims. This MO of traveling by freight train and targeting people who live near railroad tracks prompted the serial killer to be dubbed the railway killer or the rail car killer. Where Claudia Benton lived was the last street in our community, and then there's a set of train tracks that run north and south. And the other girl they kill in Houston also lived further miles north, but on the train tracks. What law enforcement eventually determined was this guy had been basically either walking the tracks or jumping on trains, and that was his primary mode. So he was being very opportunistic. He would go into a community and then, like, you know, do what felt available to him. So this whole idea of random killings, yeah, they're the most terrifying because that's just somebody you don't know breaking into your most sacred, safe places and doing something you never expected. Other, you know, murders we talk about, it's like people who know each other, just the randomness of these types of crimes. These are the things that actually do keep me up at night. Yeah. And it's like, I think the whole thing with true crime is we're trying to put order to chaos and we're trying to connect the dots and find a reason for why people are doing the things that they're doing and what goes wrong. And when it comes to like a randomized killing like this, it's just nothing makes sense. Absolutely. So what else did police know about this killer? Their investigation had revealed that this guy would stay inside of the homes of his victims for really long periods of time. And sometimes he'd even fix himself a snack. And we've kind of seen this with other killers as well. So disgusting, too. It's It's, just like, you're hungry now? It's insane. Yeah. So robbery didn't seem to be the motive because even though the killer took sentimental items from his victims, he left money at many of the crime scenes. And rape itself also didn't appear to be the primary motivator either, even though most of the female victims were violated after death. 
It was clear that he was very emboldened when he entered the homes of Claudia and the Cernics using their household items as the murder weapons. Right. And I'd say that not bringing your own weapon with you when you go out deliberately to do something like this is pretty bold and kind of specific. So as word of the serial killer's MO spread, Texans who lived in small communities adjacent to railways were becoming, understandably, increasingly terrified. And the pressure on the police to solve this string of homicides was reaching a fever pitch. So despite the fact that everyone had been attacked at home, where they should feel the safest, doors and windows that had never been locked were now bolted shut, even when people were at home. So outside of school hours, parents kept their kids indoors, and the streets were deserted after dark. Gun sales skyrocketed, and in Weimar, stores sold out of pistols. So two nights after Julie encountered the man with a dark, dark, shitty, evil energy on her street, she was at home relaxing after work and watching the news. And it's as she's watching the news that an image flashed before her eyes, and it was an eerily familiar image The depiction accompanied a new story about the unsolved murders, but police now had released a sketch of the suspect. Along with an official announcement warning the public that a serial killer was on the loose, the picture on the screen staring back at Julie took her breath away because it was the man that she'd locked eyes with on the sidewalk. I was just sitting on the couch watching the news. My husband wasn't back. He was gone for like five five or six days at that time. So I immediately, when I saw it on the news, of course, I called my husband. I said, you remember that creepy guy I told you about? I said, he is on the news. I said, I just saw his picture. There was a drawing of him. I said, I know that's him. What do I do? And he said, turn on the alarm and call the police. So Julie was stunned. And of course, she took her husband's advice and called the police to tell them of her sighting. So incredibly, Julie had been the fourth person to report a sighting of this man in West University Place which meant this killer was likely prowling around this neighborhood at this very moment. The public didn't know anything about who this person was, only what he looked like. So who was he? Did he have other victims? And how would they ultimately catch this guy? To answer all of those questions, you know the drill. We got to go back. What the public didn't know was that in the wake of these serial murders, the police were working hard behind the scenes. Three weeks after Dr. Claudia Benton was murdered, the police had linked the fingerprints found in her Jeep to someone. Right, and the prints were tied back to a 39-year-old man named Rafael Resendez Ramirez. West University Place PD alerted the INS in case he attempted to cross the border back to Mexico. Six months later, following the murders of Skip and Karen Cernick, investigators matched DNA from their crime scene to that taken from Claudia's. And that's how those initial cases were linked during this investigation. And it turns out that Rafael was just one of the names this killer went by. He was actually born Angel Motorino Leoncio Reyes Resendez on August 1st, 1959 in Puebla, Mexico. So to make things more confusing, he had multiple aliases he'd gone by over the years. And you know what? He was nondescript looking. He was short and he was stocky. And he wore big glasses and had sideburns. The FBI knew Resendez was extremely dangerous, violent, and opportunistic. In his offending, they described him as a walking, breathing form of evil, which is super comforting. So in an effort to catch him, law enforcement stepped up security at train freight yards, as well as patrolling 36,000 miles of the Union Pacific Railroad across 23 states. So no small undertaking at all. Trains all over Texas were randomly stopped and searched, 
in hopes they would find this guy. Everyone was aware of it at that time. I mean, everyone, everyone that I, you know, ever interacted with was highly aware because it was front page news and everyone was on the lookout. But sadly, before investigators could track Resendez down following Julie's tip-off, two more people would tragically lose their lives. 79-year-old George Albert Morber Sr. lived in the town of Gorham, Illinois, only 100 yards away from a railroad track. The retired father of seven and great-grandfather of 15 received a Purple Heart for his service as an Army corporal during World War II and was a former lieutenant of a correctional center in nearby Chester. So then on June 15th of 99, one of George's daughters, 51-year-old Carolyn Sue Frederick, went to visit her father. So some sources say George wasn't home when Resendez broke in, but the account of what happened next is generally consistent. So Resendez overpowered George before tying him to a chair and shooting him in the back of the head with a shotgun. Carolyn was there because she'd gone to visit her father that day, and he turned his attention to her at this point. He sexually assaulted her and then bludgeoned her using the same shotgun. He struck so hard that the firearm actually broke in two. Resendez then stole Carolyn's red pickup truck, which he was spotted driving the following day in Cairo, Illinois, 60 miles away. Fingerprints at the crime scene were tied back to their suspect, which is how they know this monster had again struck. While law enforcement was racing against the clock to apprehend this guy, the public was gripped by fear. What sort of person could actually do this? And what do we know about Resendez that could explain how and why he was doing this? So it turns out Resendez's mother, Virginia, later claimed that her son spent his childhood living with another family, but it's not exactly clear why. She states that he had no guidance and little supervision as a young child and could possibly have been sexually abused by local men and later gang raped as a teen. He was also said to have started using drugs and alcohol as a youngster, which included sniffing glue. So in the summer of 76, when Resendez was 16, he was caught by authorities in Brownsville, Texas, trying to cross the border. He was deported to Mexico, but returned to the U.S. only a month later. Three years later, Resendez broke into the home of 88-year-old Gilbert Chase in Miami. He viciously beat the man and was later convicted of burglary, vehicle theft, and aggravated assault. And he actually got a 20-year prison sentence. Gilbert would ultimately die some months later, but as it couldn't be confirmed the assault led to his death, no murder charges were ever filed against Resendez. In 85, Resendez was released back to Mexico, having only served six years. So over the next 12 years, he was in and out of the U.S. prison system and deported 17 more times. He evaded law enforcement thanks to his many, many aliases, using different birthdays and social security numbers. But in between his jail stints, Resendez worked on tobacco fields and in orange groves in the U.S. and also earned an income from smuggling Mexican immigrants over the border. So pivoting back to the active investigation, by mid-June of 1999, the manhunt for Resendez had intensified. Multiple agencies and jurisdictions across the U.S. joined forces to track down the serial killer and stop the carnage he was perpetrating across the country. But getting Mexican authorities on board was a really big challenge. Law enforcement across the border had no wanted posters of Resendez and weren't actively pursuing him. Within days of the murders of George Morber and Carolyn Frederick, the FBI announced that Resendez was on their 10 most wanted list. The initial reward of $50,000 for information leading to his capture was quickly increased to $125,000 after only a few days. 
And as investigators looked into Resendez's movements, they were disheartened to discover that there had been an earlier and missed opportunity for him to be apprehended. So a month after the murder of the Cyrenex, U.S. Border Patrol nabbed Resendez as he attempted to cross the border illegally near El Paso. However, the sketch hadn't been released yet, so Border Patrol had no clue the man standing before them was actually a serial killer on the loose. Despite a fingerprint and photo check being run against immigration records, Resendez's details weren't flagged on the system, identifying him as being wanted by the FBI, and that's a huge bummer. Border Patrol sent Resendez back to Mexico, but he was still free. And as we now know, within 48 hours, Resendez made his way back to the U.S., where he killed Naomi Dominguez, Josephine Convica, George Morber, and Carolyn Frederick. Four lives needlessly snuffed out because technology was lagging, and because INS failed to realize this was the same person that West University police had alerted them about following Claudia Benton's murder 18 months earlier. A month after the murders of Naomi Dominguez and Josephine Convica, investigators confirmed that the blood of both women was on the pickaxe used to kill them. By this time, the FBI had tracked Resendez to Juarez, Mexico. U.S. authorities decided to contact Resendez's family who lived in the town of Rodeo. Police wanted to get the family on board in the hope that they could convince Resendez to surrender. Weeks later, the FBI brought Resendez's partner and mother of his baby girl, whom we'll call Juanita, to Texas. Juanita brought with her almost 100 pieces of jewelry that Resendez had sent her in recent years. When the items were seized and shown to the victim's relatives, 13 of the pieces belonged to Naomi Dominguez and the others were Dr. Claudia Benton's. The FBI then turned to Resendez's half-sister Manuela, who lived in Albuquerque, New Mexico, who initially, you know, she wanted nothing to do with this entire investigation. But fearful that her brother could end up in a shootout with U.S. authorities or go on to take more lives, she eventually agreed to cooperate. In conjunction with the U.S. Marshals and the Texas Ranger Division, a written deal was put to Resendez via Manuela. If her brother agreed to surrender, U.S. authorities would guarantee his safety while in jail, his family could visit regularly, and he would have the benefit of psychological evaluation. Thankfully, Resendez agreed to give himself up. On July 13th of 99, the 39-year-old surrendered at a border crossing near El Paso and was arrested. Juanita turned over more jewelry, which Resendez had sent to her after he stole it from his victims. Other items recovered from Resendez's home directly linked him to Claudia Benton's murder. So the evidence against him was really getting to be very overwhelming, and he was soon indicted for his crimes. So with Resendez in custody, authorities looked to other unsolved murders in locations where he was known to have been during this time when he was prowling and murdering in the U.S. So in Florida, investigators ran his DNA against blood samples taken from the body of a 19-year-old named Jesse Lee Howell. In February of 97, Jesse and his 16-year-old fiance, Wendy Rachel Von Huben, traveled from Woodstock, Illinois to Florida with some friends. They eventually separated from those friends, and Jesse called home from Dade City and told his mom that he and Wendy would return home after they visited his grandmother in North Carolina. But neither of them ever made it to that visit. On March 23rd, Jesse's body was found beside railroad tracks in Bellevue, Florida. He had been bludgeoned to death with a railroad coupling. But Wendy, she was nowhere to be found. While law enforcement was running the testing against Jesse's crime scene evidence, Resendez was charged with the murders of the Cernix, Naomi Dominguez, Josephine Convica, George Morber, and Caroline Frederick. 
but he was also charged with two other unsolved murders. Following Angel Resendez's arrest, police charged him with the murder of 21-year-old Christopher Thomas Mayer, a junior studying theater at the University of Kentucky in Lexington. So truly, he's being linked to crimes all over the United States. It's crazy. In August of 97, Christopher and his new girlfriend, 20-year-old Holly Dunn, were walking along railroad tracks after leaving a frat party. Resendez had been hiding behind an electrical box near the tracks and ambushed the unsuspecting students. He tied them up using Holly's belt to tie her hands behind her back. He bludgeoned Christopher to death with a rock, striking him in the head multiple times. He then turned on Holly, savagely beating and raping her before leaving her for dead. Covered in blood and with a broken jaw and eye socket, she staggered to her feet and raised the alarm at a nearby house. She spent five days in the hospital. And despite providing a description of the attacker to a police sketch artist, nothing more came of it. That was until the cops tipped Holly off about the sketch being released nationwide via America's Most Wanted, and this was in the summer of 1999. When Holly watched the show, she recognized Resendez as the same man who destroyed her life almost two years earlier. Another unsolved murder Resendez was implicated in was that of 87-year-old Leafy Mason in Hughes Springs, Texas. Leafy was devoted to her sister who had profound disabilities and lived full-time with her care. Leafy visited her every day. In October of 1998, Resendez broke into Leafy's home through a window only 50 yards from the Kansas City Southern Rail Line. He beat Leafy to death with an antique fire iron as she slept. He left her body on the bedroom floor covered by a blanket. Resendez's palm print would prove to be the incriminating evidence at this crime scene. And remember, he's in custody, right, at this point. Yeah. And out of the blue, he actually provides information connecting him to yet another unsolved murder. So in December of 98, a week before he murdered Claudia Benton, Resendez broke into the home of 81-year-old Fanny Whitney Byers. Fanny lived close to the CSX Transportation Railroad in Carl, Georgia. Resendez bludgeoned the elderly woman to death with a tire rim. As a result of Resendez volunteering this information... Authorities dropped pending charges against another man who had already been wrongfully arrested for Fanny's murder. Law enforcement was anxious to talk to Resendez about both Jesse Howell and Wendy Van Huben. But due to a court order, they couldn't speak with him until after his Texas trial for the murder of Claudia. While awaiting trial, Resendez spoke to psychiatrists about what drove him to kill. He told them that he broke into homes which seemed to radiate evil stating that he broke into many more while occupants were asleep, but he chose not to do anything. He also claimed that he was acting on orders from God, who had instructed him to destroy abortion clinics before an evil presence compelled him to kill at random. And Resendez also taunted authorities after his arrest. And he told one detective that he'd committed two more murders, but he wouldn't reveal anything about them. Law enforcement was also looking into the murders of at least 60 women in Quedad, Juarez, in Mexico, whose bodies had been found next to railroad tracks. But because Mexican police weren't exactly cooperative, and Resendez denied murdering anyone in Mexico, these inquiries didn't get far. When the trial finally got underway in Houston in May of the year 2000, Resendez's defense strategy was to plead not guilty by reason of insanity. 
The defense psychiatrist testified that at the time of Claudia's murder, Resendez was suffering from schizophrenia and now didn't understand that he could potentially be sentenced to death if convicted. Like many people, our first-degree Julie was keeping an eye on how the trial was progressing. When they had the trial and they put little glimpses of it on TV and I was seeing him like alive in the flesh, it really creeped me out. It kind of brought me like post-traumatic stress or whatever. So I didn't like watching it a lot. But he said that he heard voices. I mean, it's clear to me the guy had a mental illness. I mean, I don't know if evil is a mental illness. He was evil, but who knows what the underlying cause was. Um, But he said that he heard voices and that he was being commanded to do these things. So, you know, I don't know what to make of that, except the guy obviously was very sick. The prosecution's star witness was the sole surviving victim, 22-year-old Holly Dunn, who identified Resendez during her compelling testimony, where she details her harrowing experience. The state psychiatrist told the court that Resendez was a geographically mobile, organized sexual serial killer. This type of offender committed well-planned and well-orchestrated murders with a sexual element. So key to the prosecution's case, that Resendez wasn't insane at the time of the murders, was the evidence that he'd made a concerted effort to elude and evade law enforcement through criminally sophisticated behavior, rather than symptoms of psychosis. Resendez's multiple aliases, and the fact that he didn't kill everyone whose homes he broke into, demonstrated he was mentally competent when he took each of his victims' lives, meaning he was making concerted choices, and he was kind of being picky in a really disgusting way. Once both sides rested, it didn't take long for the jury to find Resendez guilty of capital murder and sentenced him to death. Following the sentence, Resendez's half-sister Manuela claimed U.S. law enforcement had lied to her about the terms of his surrender. Manuela asserted that she was assured that if her brother gave himself up, he wouldn't be executed and would instead receive a life sentence. But there's nothing in any way to suggest this occurred or that investigators made promises to Manuela that they couldn't or wouldn't keep. The biggest news I remember was the whole scuttlebutt over his sister being very upset. And she tried to bring a lawsuit. It was, it, I mean, it was stupid. She was like really upset. So even though Resendez had been sentenced, this still wasn't over. You'll recall that the cops couldn't talk to Resendez about Jesse Howell and Wendy Von Buren until after his trial. So once the proceedings were wrapped up under the condition of immunity, Resendez confessed to finally murdering this young couple, finally confessed to this. And he told detectives that he met the pair in Florida and invited them to accompany him to find work on these orange groves that he was working on. So after boarding a freight train with him, Jesse and the older man got out of the car at the train switching station near Bellevue, where Resendez bludgeoned him to death. The killer kept Wendy alive for another eight terrifying hours before raping her, suffocating her with duct tape and strangling her. He wrapped her body in a blanket and camouflage jacket and buried it in a shallow grave in Sumter County, Florida, about 15 miles south. Resendez claimed he killed the couple because they believed in witchcraft, but there's no evidence that this was true. Police instead believe that Resendez killed Jesse to get to Wendy. And just over a year later, Resendez confessed to three more murders. One was the killing of 22-year-old Michael White, whose body was found in July of 1991 in the front yard of an abandoned downtown house in San Antonio, Texas. According to Resendez, he bludgeoned Michael to death with a brick because he was gay. 
Resendez drew a map of the crime scene and provided details that only the killer could have known, which was enough to convince police that the murderer was sitting right in front of them. And if you think this dude was done confessing to murders, that would make you wrong because he claimed responsibility for two more that were committed in Bexar County, Texas in 1986. So his story for the first one was that he met an unknown woman at a homeless shelter. The pair then took a motorcycle trip and Resendez brought along a 38 caliber firearm for quote unquote target practice. After shooting this woman, Resendez dumped her body in an abandoned farmhouse. And he also confessed to killing this woman's boyfriend, shooting him before dumping him in a creek between San Antonio and Uvalde. Resendez claimed he killed the man because he was also involved in black magic and the woman because she disrespected him. The body of the victim in question has never been found, and law enforcement don't know any more than what Resendez has divulged. So they don't even know if this is true or who these people are if it is. And if you're wondering whether these confessions were a last-ditch effort for Resendez to do the right thing and provide answers for the victim's families, then you're going to be disappointed. The only reason that he confessed to the additional murders was in this crazy delusional hope that his execution would be expedited. And his body count, unfortunately, doesn't end there. Resendez is the prime suspect in the murder of a 54-year-old named Roberto Castro. In July of 97, Roberto was found beaten to death in a rail yard in Colton, California. Truly, this guy is all over the place. He'd been bludgeoned to death with a railroad coupling, but there was insufficient evidence linking Resendez to this murder. Then while he was awaiting the outcome of his appeal, Claudia Benton's husband, George, was awarded $49 million in a wrongful death lawsuit. And as resulting as this sounds, Resendez had been trying to sell his hair samples and autographs online like some gruesome memorabilia. And while George would never see a cent, it was some comfort knowing that Resendez wouldn't be able to profit off of his disgusting behavior. Resendez's appeal was denied, and he's still committed to expediting his execution. So he's trying to get the death penalty sooner. So he even tried to facilitate this by admitting to more murders, like murders he didn't commit. But, you know... That wasn't going to work. The day of Resendez's execution in June of 2006, his legal team, along with the Mexican consul general, tried to argue that he wasn't competent to be executed and that the death penalty was a cruel and unusual punishment. These pleas were refused, but it didn't stop Resendez from confessing to other murders, bringing his self-reported victim total to 20. Only 15 of the alleged murders have been confirmed. Claudia Benton's husband, George, who witnessed the execution, later described Resendez as a diseased human, saying what was executed today may have looked like a man, walked and talked like a man, but what was contained inside that skin was not a human being. This is not human behavior, but something I can only say is evil contained in human form, a creature without a soul, no conscience, no sense of remorse, no regard to the sanctity of human life. Julie also recalls how she felt on that day of his execution. I remember when they announced his execution and that was on the news and I was, you know, I don't want to say you cheer for someone being dead, but I was, I just felt relieved. I just, I felt like, and I'm not always a fan of capital punishment, but I felt like in that case, it was probably the best outcome. Julie's had time to reflect on what her encounter meant in the broader context of this case. And she's saddened that Resendez wasn't apprehended sooner and wonders what could have been. But she also wonders what could have gone so wrong for someone to become such a depraved human being. I know it's difficult, and law enforcement is so hamstrung with rules and jurisdiction. It's very disappointing to me that the guy was out killing people for several years before 
two and two was put together. I mean, I don't know how many other deaths could have been prevented had there been some kind of information to the public that this guy's out there and he's killing people. And the other takeaway is there are some people, I guess, who are so damaged, and I don't know if it's genetic. There are some people whose brains are just so wrong that they literally cannot live within society, and that makes me very sad. He obviously knew it was wrong on some level, but he was still compelled to do it. So, you know, I, I can't imagine what it's like to have that kind of brain. It's just so far from me that I just don't get it. But every so often, for whatever reason, the memories come to me, and it's just like... It's like evil is actually a palpable thing. I don't know. I mean, you can actually feel it. You can sense things about people, whether you see them, touch them, hear them, or whatever. And and he had it. There was just something that emanated from him that was so evil. And that was just, that's why I noticed him. Rosinda's killed casually, effortlessly, and whenever the whim struck him. Julie's encounter, as soul-shaking as it is, was benign. But life and staying alive and avoiding evil is a numbers game, isn't it? Anything could have altered this killer's path that day. Anything could have influenced his choices or made him take an opportunity that presented itself. It really makes you wonder how many killers you've casually passed on the streets and not even known. How many you may have shaken hands with or sat across from at a board meeting. But like Julie, friends, stay vigilant. Take your heads out of your phones because you never know what lies in the path ahead. Well, huge thank you to Julie for being our first degree guest on today's podcast. If you're listening out there and you have a story to tell, you can email us hello at the first degree podcast.com. Follow us on Instagram, join our Facebook group. Please join our Patreon. We're having so much fun bonus content over there. And tomorrow we'll have a brand new episode of Killing Time right in your feed. And remember, only you can prevent serial killers. And keep your friends close, but not that close. Shout out to Jared Monaco for scoring original music for The First Degree, producing by Caitlin Cleveland, writing and research by... The one and only Gemma Harris. Sources for this episode are ABC 13, CBS News, the Texas Department of Criminal Justice, Houstonia Magazine, NBC News, Court Documents, The Daily Beast, The Houston Chronicle, CNN, Crime Library, The Ocala Star Banner, The LA Times, The Chicago Tribune, The Seattle Times, Medium.com, and the Texas Execution Information Center. And as always, our first three guests is always our largest source.